Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today again is Barry Cohen of ProTech. Barry, welcome. Thanks, Ariel. Always great to be with you. Appreciate your time. So one of the things I love about talking to you about ProTech is that even though you're not new to the industry, it's still a relatively new brand and you have the sort of what I call the startups and downs, right? Um, And it's been a very interesting couple of years because you you went into this with a huge amount of excitement, a lot of knowledge, and you've had high times and low times and then high times again. Talk a little bit about the emotional experience that you and others running brands uh, like this feel like and how it's very, it's, again, it's a very emotional experience. Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly if you meant the high times currently on this brand or the high times in my career prior. So I'm not sure what you want me to address. Well, I I think we're, we're talking about ProTech, because every okay. brand has highs and lows, but I think right now is a good high point. And I think that it's so, it's people don't really understand how many opportunities small brands can fail. There's so many instances where things can go bad. It requires perseverance to keep picking up because, again, there's lots of tripping that happens. I guess you call that tripping at the early stages of brands, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a, <laughs> it's, this touches on a, a big change in the dynamics of retail in our world, uh, which has occurred over the last couple of decades. But let's let's say this. it's I believe it's a lot harder to launch a brand today than it was, say, 20, 25 years ago. Um, it's, it's almost as if the method to launch the brand has been reversed. And, and I, th- I mean, if I'll, I'll dive into this, I'll try not to bore too many people or bore you with it, but... The changing dynamic of retail has had an, had an impact on how one can get a brand a brand going and and the difficulty of, of doing so. You mentioned you mentioned the reversal. Explain try yeah. to explain that because I think that establishing the scenario is helpful because people need to know exactly the context that we're talking about here. All right, so let me just give you one example. When I I, I live in Northern California, when I first arrived in Northern California, let's say. 40 years ago, um, there were 14 department stores I could call on here, just to give you an idea. Today, there's three department stores, and none of them are based here. What What is the effect of this? Well, in the old days, it was a lot easier to gain entree into stores and try to begin uh, the growth of a, of a brand and of a business by getting that entree. Today, gaining entree into the much fewer stores is extremely difficult. Uh, the retailers are less likely to want to take a, a risk per se with a new brand. They essentially want tried and true brands that the consumers already screaming for and asking for. So that, uh, that gate is pretty well closed most of the time today for a new startup. And that's a big difference. I mean, in the old days, uh, w- with so many retail stores before conglomeration of retail, uh, 
you know, buyers had the latitude and the wherewithal to test newness and to try new brands, even if only for the express purpose of trying to give their department a little different character from every other department in the, in the multitude of stores. Um, and I can remember this even back in my costume jewelry days, uh, where there was a buyer at Bullock's North who prided herself on having a very, very unusual department and it was special and you knew when you walked into that department this was that lady's department uh, today i could take you into any retail store blindfolded take the blindfold off and if you don't see the store name how do you know what store it is you don't because they're all it's cookie cutter they're all carrying the same exact merchandise and that's what i mean about a changing dynamic so how are things reversed to come back to your question it felt like in the old days you could kind of get your feet wet a little bit at the retail level where consumers could experience you, see you, talk to salespeople about you. Oh, that's another story, less salespeople. Um, but uh, today it's almost like you have to establish yourself uh, almost with direct-to-consumer selling so that you create some A, awareness, B, desire, uh, C, appreciation, and some degree of success that the major retailers would say, okay, I'm hearing about this and customers seem to want it. Let's bring it in. So that's what I mean about the, a reversal of the processes uh, to get yourself into wide stream retail. I want to comment on that because I thank you for that story and it's incredibly relevant. One of the things I want to say about that is companies that make watches today have had to add on a significant new component to their business which is the demand creation side. Because as Barry indicated, in the past, the job was to make a good watch that was desirable. And then you went to uh, a relatively narrow set of distribution channels who would sell products to the consumer and basically say, have I got something cool for you? Your consumers want new stuff, cool stuff, exclusive stuff. I can offer you that if we work together and maybe even only you have to sell that. And that was the way things were, uh, we'll call that traditionally. Nowadays, the, the retailers, department stores, et cetera, no longer have those monopolies on consumer attention. To reach a consumer, it's as easy as spending a little bit of money advertising on social media in many instances. Do you reach every consumer? No. Is it cost effective? Not really, but is it doable? Absolutely. And it used to be that that a brand to reach consumers had to go through the store and the store put their effort into developing the relationship with the consumers, not making stuff because they knew there was always some brand there with something cool that would just love to have that ability to get in front of customers. And so now you have companies that by necessity of the, the current, uh, you know, we'll call it internet commerce economy, have to do so many more tasks than they used to, meaning make great products and make demand in an environment which is so hyper-competitive, very rarely are there the budgets or margins that allow companies to be that big. And it's a very strange situation to be in, isn't it? It really is. And, and it's, uh, it just makes it, there's nothing easy about it. Let's put it that way. It's very difficult. You certainly have to have some money with you to do this. Uh, I can't imagine trying to launch a brand without some capital, whereas in the old days, 
you could launch a brand and just gain entree into stores because there was something compelling about the product. And bit by bit, you'd get organic growth. Customers would start to buy it. It would start to catch on. More advertising would happen with the given retailers. You get Today, orders. You get orders from retailers. You, orders. Yeah. you could take that contract to a bank and say, if I have the money to make this production run, I can make this money here. Loan me the money I need for the production run, and you can see I have a guaranteed order. These days, there's no guaranteed orders. It's, I need to make, we'll just say, a 1,000 watches, and then hope I can sell them one by one to consumers on the internet, which is really the changing dynamic. There's no one out there anymore that, for the most part, is willing to buy a 1,000 units uh, of a watch and, and, and offer you a big sum. It's, it's, it's a very different game. Would you, would you modify what I said or add to that? Well, I, I would basically concur with you. Everything you've said is 100% accurate. And I, here's one thing I would add to it, for sure. Coming back to the discussion about conglomeration of retail, the difficulty of gaining entree into retail, the fact that it's cookie cutter merchandise being shown at retail predominantly. Add one more dynamic. In the old days, when you gained entree into retail, it was a kind of a mutual respect relationship and you were working together. And I don't want to, I don't want to malign retail today, but as the stores became more powerful because there were less of them, it became a situation where if you got this opportunity, uh, you would have it with an understanding that anything that doesn't work is going right back to you. And let's take, let's take the Nordstrom and Sears way of doing business, which is go ahead, go ahead. And, and, uh, and I'm paraphrasing it and I may not be hundred percent accurate, but there's a lot of truth to this. Go ahead, wear it, enjoy it, destroy it, bring it back to us. We'll give you another one. And then we'll foist it back on the resource. Interesting. Again, I mean, those those two retailers are the ones that come to mind that kind of began that methodology. And let's take a look at that. What does that really mean? All right. So now you have resource ABC or XYZ, and they're going into a store with this understanding that this is going to happen. And they know they're going to get X amount back because that's going to be part of this uh, business relationship. Well, they're not going to go out of business. They don't want to go out of business. So they need to do a couple things. They need to load the cost of, of that into the cost of product and or, and it could be a combination, they need to take something out of the product so that it, net net, it's actually a lesser product costing them less so they can afford to work on a business that way. And, I mean, what, essentially what, what happened is some retailers eliminated consumer accountability, which is kind of sad. I mean, as, as a human being, if you destroy something, okay, you get another one. You don't take it back to the store. You, you are the, be accountable for your behavior. And so what I'm saying here, and this is really where it comes all the way back to the consumer is who do you think the winner and the loser is here? The loser is the consumer for multiple reasons. They're probably getting a lesser product because the resources have to build in the cost structure to be able to handle significant returns, meaning there's something taken out of it. Uh, and they are definitely getting a reduced mix of product to look at, observe, and consider. So how has the retailer, how has the consumer won in that particular methodology? I can't think of a way. 
So I, I just think that. Uh, but but the, 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 the retailer, you know, thinks of themselves first, the consumer second, and then maybe you third. You know, I think a lot of this has to do with the weakening of the retailer, where they, when they were stronger, there was more you could do with them. They have suffered from lowering foot traffic, lower costs by a lot of competitors, and the fact that a lot of the, the, the brands they used to sell appeared to me more than happy to entirely bypass them and develop relationships directly with you know, large groups of consumers because these were bigger companies that could do so. I, you know, I think that their focus on being defensive is probably predictable, right? I imagine. But again, I just don't, I just, I just don't believe that in this day and age, the consumers, the consumers getting a better choice of product or, or a better quality product in many instances. And it's, it's kind of a shame, really. It, it, it is a shame. You know what I think is the oddest thing? And this is something that I think about a lot is why haven't we fully moved to online department stores, especially when it comes to things like watches? And let me explain what I mean by this. One thing I know for sure, and I'm sure you'll agree, is that most consumers like shopping environments where they can select between different products in the same category. And what I mean by that is they prefer going to a watch store that has products from a bunch of different brands rather than going to a watch store that has products from one brand. We know this in America, this is especially true. And that's why I think department stores worked well, is that you could go in there and browse and ostensibly make your selection from a few of the types of products they have. So yes, the store wins, but ultimately you feel like you're choosing something from you. Why has it been that there's been a rush to individual brands selling online, but the de department store concept online hasn't well, really taken off well? And I think it's a very interesting question, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the reason uh, I would think that the reason that that is the path that we've seen taken by many of the watch brands uh, is twofold. One is they control their environment completely, and the second is they get the store's margin. I mean, absolutely, there's an economic reason, but I think what's interesting is that the department stores or that the businesses themselves have not figured out good models. I mean, I actually know the answer, and the answer really goes back to the cost of acquisition uh, per customer. The amount of time and effort required to get a paying customer to buy something from your shop is pretty high. Uh, you know, in, in, let, let's say we're going back to the, 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 the brick and mortar. You're walking around at a mall. You're in a Nordstrom. They have the thing you want. Do you, A, just buy it there and get it? Or do you, you know, drive all around town looking for a different price or maybe go online and shop around, stuff like that, or just have the convenience? But when it's online and you're not in the store to begin with, you don't really care where you buy from. You might get excited by something uh, from the Nordstrom website, but then do a Google search and identify that the same exact item is available else somewhere cheaper elsewhere. And that happened for a long time. And Nordstrom's like, well, we can't support our marketing, our stores, our staff, all this stuff uh, when there's all these people undercutting us. So the Nordstrom's of the world did their job of getting customer eyeballs on the products, but ultimately weren't able to secure the sale because their costs couldn't be the cheapest online. And I think that 
that that is responsible for much of the decreasing power of these stores and why it's been challenging for them to do as well online as they did in sort of a more captive environment in the real world. Could well be, because their online prices probably have to match their in-store prices. The other thing I would say is that there's, uh, and, and perhaps I am old school, I mean, I know a lot of people, they just buy everything online, Amazon or where have you, everything online. And I think there's a certain joy in, not just in watches, in anything, in actually seeing the product, holding the product, trying the product on. That's missed in this online experience. And, uh, and I think it's a loss, actually. It is for sure. And I think that especially with ProTech, which is a product that you are so excited about people seeing, handling, touching, you know that in pictures, you can have other things kind of look similar to it. But, you know, in watches, the difference between a luxury timepiece and a non-luxury timepiece is like, what, one or two percent in the detailing? You can take pictures to make a crappy watch look great. We know that. It's so hard to identify the actual look and feel of something online. And I think for me, that's what's really missing in, in, in this online environment is that people aren't just using it to learn about watches and have community, but they're forming their entire opinion about a product or a brand based upon you know images, which is a third party and indirect experience. I, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to me about how consumers are so comfortable forming opinions. I guess that's all they know. But again, I think that you and I agree that the in-person component to watch appreciation is so necessary to be a real enthusiast, right? I think it is, and and, uh, and we've seen that actually, even with even with Protec, where you know we're we're doing our outreach, we're talking to jewelers, we're talking to retailers, we're talking to outdoor stores, you know, military stores, whatever, the whole mix. And I've had, for example, some jewelers that I've been on the phone with say. Yeah, the stuff looks good, but you know, you're asking me to spend five thousand bucks here. I, I haven't really seen a watch. I said, no problem. Give me your address. Send them watches. And the response that I've had in every single instance so far was, your pictures were really good, but when I hold the watch, when I see the watch, when I try it on, it's way better. Let's write the order. How do, you, how do you feel? Do you feel justified? Do you feel good? Do you feel angry that it took that much to convince people? I'm just curious, when, when that happens, obviously it's a good thing, but what are some of your initial like emotional responses to that? Well, the initial responses are, man, it sure as hell is difficult to get opportunities, but, <laughs> but that, which, you know, it is a startup. Let's not lose sight of that. Um, so it, the difficulty is inherent in any startup. And so that's the downside and the frustration, if you will. Thankfully, I know we make great product. I know it's well-designed. I know it's well-made. And thankfully, when it gets into the hands of people that would be the decision makers, they arrive at the same epiphany. Wow, this stuff is really nicely made and it's a great value. Uh, and so we gain that opportunity. But but it's frustrating that you know that it's not that easy to get that opportunity. I've single-handedly watched the process of cheaper and cheaper watches being touted as luxury products online. First, it was look-alike products that were meant to look like the more expensive ones. Then they replicated the way that expensive watches spoke about themselves. 
Then they replicated the entire branding and, 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 and things like that. And what you have is this interesting economy where they try to use all the ambiguities of the internet in their favor, right? <laughs> all, all the tricks you can think of to persuade people who haven't seen something that this is cool, whether it's testimonials, uh, you know, strategic discounts, you know, very attractive lifestyle photography. I, I, there's, I remember seeing certain startup websites for watches where they would have all this amazing imagery, but you would notice is that there's no watches and any of that actual imagery. So like there were some like renderings of watches and then a bunch of like essentially unrelated graphics that some designer decided to include. And if like, you thought about it carefully, you realize like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like these watches have never actually been shot in this environment. Someone just sort of Photoshopped all this together. But they have found that in many instances, that's, that's enough, right? Because they only do as much as is necessary to make the amount of money that they think they need to make, right? They're not going to put $10 million into a website if they're not expecting uh, or not hoping to make that type of money back. And so it's been this very interesting, uh, uh, like I said, experience of seeing what people think they can get away with to sell a watch, right? Yeah, it's, and I, I've noticed exactly what you're talking about too, that it's really less about sell. I guess we're talking watches, but it doesn't have to be watches. It could be a bottle of tequila. It could be anything. But it's really about selling an image and a visceral feeling that one gets when you look at the image more so than the actual product, which is kind of odd, actually. No, it's a, actually it's a hack. <laughs> it's, it's, they're hacking into the consumer sentiment. They recognize that that satisfies us, that gets us curious, and that we're, we're willing to spend money to satisfy that emotion, right? The internet is really good at this. It's identified. Yeah. It's like, hey, you have this emotion. B, here's the thing that can that can uh, you know supplement that emotion or add to that emotion, give you the emotion you want. All you need to do is buy this thing. Yeah. And internet marketers are so good at identifying a need, saying that they have the solution to your need, and all you need to do is buy it. And with watches, this is how it started. I think this is, is kind of amazing. It's you want that luxury watch experience. You can't afford that luxury watch experience. Buy our watch. It's going to give you a lot of that luxury watch experience. It'll make you feel like you're wearing a luxury watch, even though you're not paying luxury prices. And that's that's essentially what the pitch has been a lot of the time. And consumers not even recognizing that's the pitch buy into it very uh, enthusiastically, don't they? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny. I mean, as of a couple of years ago, the term luxury, especially online, was beaten to death. I don't think the term luxury means anything on the internet anymore. I think it's so genericized. It's just a pleasant sounding term. I can't disagree with that either. <laughs> right, all, right? All, 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 no, I can't disagree with it. Although we all know that there is something called luxury and we all know that certain items truly fit into what we historically believe luxury meant. I mean, the thing is, do we all know? Because I learn that a lot of the younger enthusiasts who for the first several years of being consumer did it online don't really recognize what luxury is in, in the product sense until they see it. They literally think luxury is just a marketing concept. It takes time for them to actually see the difference between a high-end product and not a high-end product and be like, oh, that's what they're talking about. It's not just branding. It's not just, you know, endorsed celebrities. It's the fact that this item works better, is made better, looks nicer than this one. And I think that's sort of 
at the end of the day, what allows the high-end segment of the watch industry to maintain is that authentic, visceral, tactile difference, which is entirely lost on the internet most of the time. Well, that's exactly what I was about to say to you, that you can feel the difference. Uh, you know, I like you, I, I have a few nice high-end watches. And just the other day, I, I put on an, uh, an Omega Seamaster and and the thought, you know, most of the time I have to wear my own brands, right? Because that's, I'm in the watch business, but I have a nice Omega. I threw it on my wrist and I said, you know, it really does feel nice and it's really nicely made. And I mean, you can, it is visceral and you can feel it when it's in your hands or on your wrist. So that comes back to the discussion earlier about how important it is to be able to actually see, hold, touch, feel, put on a product live as opposed to uh, looking at them on the internet. So let's talk about some of the important people that you've recently acquired, I'll call it that, to wear ProTech because in the internet economy, if you can't see and touch it yourself, we will sometimes be okay with a substitute. And if it's a famous substitute or an impressive substitute, that's that's cool. So knowing that it's going to take a while before more people physically put a ProTech on their wrist, you know, your strategy and a common strategy is to say, here's some important people have chosen to wear it. Who are those people? And and talk a little bit about that extension of the ProTech brand that you now have some important well, wrists that you have watches on. I mean, I don't know that we have that many quote unquote important people, but I can tell you certain things that we've been working on that uh, are helping to establish brand credibility. Let's call it that. Um, you know, when we last spoke, Ariel, that goes back quite a while. I think it might be almost a year or nine months or so. And a lot has happened in the interim, aside from getting into dozens of accounts, thank, thankfully. Uh, we, we still need a lot more. We uh, acquired an affiliation with the United States Marines, which is something that we're very proud of and very happy to have uh, developed. And I can tell you how it came to pass, but and I'll tell you what it's primary purpose in in my view is you know any product i don't care what the product is uh, doesn't really matter it could be watches it could be shoes it could be suits uh, for women it could be handbags it could be jewelry it could be let I me mean, go down the list it doesn't matter what the product is that that product has a certain outlook a design and that either appeals to you or it doesn't so that's where you need to visually see it and, and say okay i like this or i don't like it and getting or developing this uh, relationship now with the United States Marines, for us, that's a very important hook to get people to take that look. And I noticed that even at a, at a couple trade shows as I was showing watches and people like them right away. I mean, I think our designs are, look, I'm subjective, but I think our designs are very good. Our designers highly accomplished having designed some of the top tag Hoyers and some top Gucci's. I mean, he's got a long history and, we came up with what I believe are aesthetically pleasing designs. Uh, and so that's great. They're on display. A customer sees them. They're pleasing. That's great. But sometimes it's nice, not sometimes, always it's nice if you have some kind of hook that will actually make the people say, oh, really? Let me take a look. And this affiliation that we now have with the U.S. Marines, for us, it is that hook. And I saw at trade shows where people are looking at the watches and loved them. And I said, and here's the uh, official United States Marines Club. Oh, you know, right away they're, oh, <laughs> uh, heightened interest. And 
and that's just one series, right? One collection. But when you have that collection and it's been universally loved, thankfully, but when you have that collection uh, that is tied to an important organization like that, there's a hook that then legitimizes really the entire brand and and helps a consumer look even beyond that collection at everything else with, let's just call it heightened confidence or heightened enthusiasm. So that's been a very important thing for us. And by the way, they came to me, which was very complimentary. You know, when I was, uh, when I was running Luminox, they had come to us and we had a nice conversation and they wondered if we'd want to develop a little program with them and nothing but respect for all armed forces, all. Uh, and, and at the time I had to very politely decline because I thought it would, uh, kind of dilute the message of my of the Luminox brand, which was tied more to Navy. And so we passed on it respectfully. Uh, but the fellow who had created that program for the Marines uh, reached out to me and, and his two sentences, which were really, the first one is great and the second one is incredibly humbling. Uh, he said, the words on the street, I heard you're back in Tritium Tactical Watches. And I said, yeah, I'm developing a new brand now. It's called ProTech. And it's just coming to market in his last uh, summer, I guess. And he's and his words, his next words were, "If you're doing it, we want it." And I said, "Whoa, <laughs> thank that's you. sweet, it's incredibly kind of you." And so, I guess within a couple of uh, a couple of weeks' time, we put a deal together, and so we're, we now have uh, an officially licensed United States Marine product. That, Congratulations! That I mean, you kind of you kind of struck lightning twice there because, you know, going back to the Luminox thing, uh, we've talked about this in previous conversations, but when you would walk into a sharper image, which was a store that had a, a display, there was conspicuous branding about the Marine thing. And it was like wristwatch, Marines, armed. That was about oh, was the, the Navy. Was the Navy? Okay. Well, it was, yeah. it was armed forces and you would, oh yeah, it was the Navy SEALs. That's right. The Navy right. SEALs. Yep. And y- you didn't even need to know too much more than that. It was like, oh, it's good enough for them. Well, right. they like high-end equipment. They're very demanding. Their stuff needs to work well. They're not about fluff. They're about substance. And that type of, I'll call it authoritative shortcut, uh, especially in the United States, works very, very well. But it needs to be backed up with truth, right? If it's just a hook and you can't back it up with a real product story, then then it's that that's it it's you you you've lost your relationship with that consumer forever because you've bs them that's right you never want to bs them you got it. the proofs in the pudding and it's got to be there and by the way to your point when let's take sharper image when we first launched with sharper image they didn't even refer to the brand as luminox they just called it the navy seal watch so that goes exactly to your point and yeah. i had to have uh, conversations with uh, well, richard tallheimer who was the ceo at the time uh to say, hey, Richard, we're trying to build a brand here. I don't. It's fine that you mentioned Navy SEAL, but the first thing you got to mention is the brand name, and he, he agreed, and, and the rest became history because it became <laughs> one of our biggest accounts. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. 
Here's how it works. Luxury Names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. So anyway, that's, that's certainly part of what we're doing. You know, we're, the other thing that, you know, I think goes unmentioned and unnoticed at, at times, you know, I get, I get a lot of the credit for, for what happened uh, with Luminox, but you know, no brand builds by itself or by one person. It certainly was not me. It was a collection of teammates and, you know, I, I wasn't even the only founder. Uh, I, I came up with the idea and Richard Timbo was my partner in the launch of Luminox. And I can tell you that I don't think I would have succeeded as well without him. We were a tremendous team. We worked really well together and we had a, a heck of a lot of fun together. And that fun rubbed off when we were around each other and we were around accounts and uh, and it helped us gain penetration into retail and build a business. And he was integrally involved in every aspect. And even uh, his wife, Bridget Timbo, handled uh, a lot of the operations and the sales. And she was an important cog in that wheel without question. And that's just the first beginnings of getting it going. And then we had other key hires. There was a guy named Max Robertson who was actually my son's CYO basketball coach, but I got to know him. He was a Marine. I got to see his can-do way of being. You know, it was never can't-do. It was always can-do and let's get it done. And I always called him a can-do guy. And, you know, he was probably the most significant and most important employee the brand ever had uh, globally. And a lot of what we accomplished is because of him. Uh, we had a great sales manager in the early days in, in Tony Alifi who traveled the world or traveled the country layering on accounts for us. He did a lot of great work. And then in the second part of the Luminox story, uh, we brought on a guy named Dennis Begain and Dennis Begain had history and watches uh, with Tag Heuer and also Pandora. And, <clears throat> and the way I've said things about Dennis is he did the impossible. I've always said it, the impossible. Uh, he got us into about 300 top-tier jewelers in this country. Over 200 of them were Rolex dealers. And it's not like those people were sitting there in the store saying, boy, I sure hope somebody comes in today to show us merchandise <laughs> to fill this empty case. Otherwise, what are we going to do? You know, those cases are full. And he managed to nudge people aside and got us got us into a hell of a lot of accounts. And, you know, so I, it's important to note the teamwork. There's also another guy, Dennis Atkinson. He was the longest tenured rep we we had, and he came from retail with Macy's. So he really understood that side of the business, and uh, he really helped uh, not only train a lot of the reps, but uh, he was really, really good at uh, explaining the virtues of the brand and and helping to build territory. In fact, we moved him from territory to territory because he kept building territories. So, you know, I mean, teamwork is certainly part of how things got going for that brand. I don't have a team today. We're a small startup. Uh, We have a couple of pretty good reps so far that are unearthing some nice opportunities for us. Uh, But, you know, it's still the word startup. I can't get away from that. Now, we have a couple things that have happened that are, I think, good for our brand. Uh, Out of the blue, much like 
much like how the Marines called me out of the blue, I started hearing from people in law enforcement, uh, first responder groups that have said, uh, hey, you're back in doing tritium watches. Would you make watches for our group? And of course, we're underway on several of those for different uh, law enforcement and first responder organizations. And that's part of building credibility for a brand. Also, if you supply San Francisco police or ATF or whoever the heck it is, uh, SWAT teams. Well, that's kind of similar to or analogous to what you said before, where, oh, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And, and so, of course, we pursue those and we want those. But thankfully, people have actually come to us for that. So that's wonderful. We just aligned ourselves with a group in Hawaii called I Waterman. And I'll tell you a little bit about them. Uh, you know that I, I've made the watches for the official watches of the Hawaiian lifeguards. Right. And, and I'll tell you that that watch for that price is one of the best beater, beat the crap out of it watches you'll ever see. And we've been getting, <laughs> you, know, you just, you can bang the hell out of this thing and it can stand up to it. And they're made in a dust-free clean room and our defect rate is down around a half a percent, but I'm not really going to dwell on HLA, but those lifeguards over there, in fact, here, here's a true story. I was at the SHOT Show. Uh, well, what I was going to tell you is those lifeguards over there are experts at ocean rescue. They develop the protocols that are used the world over in expediting ocean rescue, from the use of the jet ski to get people out of the water fast, the tow sled that they invented to get people onto, because you got X number of seconds to get out of the why? Out of why the all in Hawaii, by the way? I mean, there's other places where people are swimming. Well, there's only there's only, there's less than a dozen places on this planet where they have the big wave surf contests, right? And Hawaii has many of them. You know, there's a few others. There's Navarre in, in Portugal. There's the Outer Banks, I think it's called. Oh, so it, oh, so it it's stemmed around the danger of the competitive surfing. Correct. Correct. I see. And that, you know, I mean, any, you know, low, low smaller surf is, is easier to be rescued from. When a, when a, when a wall of, weight, of water coming in that's 50 feet tall comes in, you can imagine the inexorable power of that. And it's much tougher to be rescued and you got a smaller window. And, and so these guys in Hawaii, there are some women too, but some of these guys like Brian Kealana is a, he's a lifeguard legend. This so like the, the Navy seals of lifeguards. <laughs> the, yes. And that, and so now what I'm going to tell you is they train U S special forces and U S military in expediting rescue in ocean environments. In fact, last week they trained Navy seals. And the week before that, I believe they were training Army Rangers. So, I mean, it happens all the time. I was at the SHOT Show. A guy from Virginia pops by our booth. I'm showing him the ProTech watches. Yeah, he's interested, blah, blah, blah. And we started talking about it. He knew my background with Luminox, Navy SEAL. He's a Navy SEAL. And he wasn't, you know, a younger guy. So he was in management. He was in his 40s. And and I I said, do you want to look at Hawaiian Lifeguard while you're here? He said, yeah, let me see it. And then I jumped into, you know, these are guys are the real deal. I mean, they're serious water people. And he goes, you don't have to tell me. I've sent dozens of my guys there. So, I mean, here's a, a Navy SEAL telling me that he knows damn well about them. Anyway, some of these guys created uh, a company called I Waterman, And this company now trains military and special forces all year long in 10 hour a day sessions, five days a week. And you know, 
I've known him for years because some of these legends helped me create the Hawaiian lifeguard watch. So I reached out to him on a recent trip and I went and met with him and I said, this is what I'm doing now with ProTech, blah, blah, blah. You know my history, you know Luminox, so on. And next thing you know, now we are the recommended and suggested watch of Iowa Waterman and they are letting the entire military world and special forces know about it. So there's an affiliation that can help our brand uh, in, in creating more awareness for some of what we would call our target customers. And, and that's in that same arena, you know, that same first responder arena. But we are actually taking an interesting step outside of that arena that I want to tell you about because it's something very, very different for me anyway and for watch brands I've, I've worked there's a guy I know who was a big fan of Luminox. Pardon my, pardon my earpieces. They were slipping there. There's a guy I know that was a big fan of Luminox. Uh, I've known him for years. He was actually lead guitarist for Stevie, uh, Steve Winwood for 20 some odd years, played with Clapton, played with George Harrison. He's pretty much a guitar virtuoso. And I got to know him because he was teaching a friend. And as we got to know each other, he said, hey, I like this Luminox stuff. And he started wearing Luminox. And I recently, last year, I was saw an email back and forth with him. And I said, I don't know if you know, but I've gone in a new direction. I'm doing ProTech. Told him a little bit about it. He says, if you're switching, I'm switching. Okay, great, wonderful. And he had gotten his son uh, into Luminox. So I get a call from his son. And his son was the... Uh, is deeply embroiled in the world of tennis. He was the University of San Francisco tennis coach for well over a decade. And he was on the pro tour at one point. And so he calls me up and he says, my dad says, you got a new brand. I got to see it. Let's go for lunch. So we went for lunch. And on the spot, he said, I love these. I'm buying these right now. I'm Venmoing you money. He started pulling watches for himself. And a couple of weeks later, he calls me back and he says, you know, Barry, I love these watches. I like them better than any Luminox I ever had. This is now the brand I'm going to wear. And I want to know if you'd like to be the official watch of a professional tennis tournament. And I said, what are you talking about? And so he, he has created a new tennis tournament that touches on a societal issue that we hear a lot about today. In fact, it's kind of in the news today with women's soccer. You know, the North, the, the U.S. Uh, women's soccer team pioneered equal pay, as you probably, as you and your audience probably knows. So uh, this fellow uh, decided to create the first ever tennis tournament, pro tournament, with equal prize money for both genders and got it approved by the WTA and the ATP. And the tournament is at Stanford in the third week of August. So a couple of weeks from now. Uh, and little old ProTech, our tiny little brand, is the official watch with our logo on the court, our logo on banners, watches given to the top 12 participants that end up in the semis and the finals in both doubles and singles, and a chance for us to touch consumers because there's a fan village where we'll be set up, and it's a chance for us to touch mainstream, you know, so outside of first responders, just a sporting event, uh, and also be tied to and affiliated with something that is uh, promoting uh, some equality of uh, men's and women's prize money, which, look, any, I, 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 of course, I believe in it. I have a son and I have a daughter. Why should my daughter be at a disadvantage? It makes no sense to me. And uh, so I thought, okay, this is, uh, 
this is a good thing to tie ourselves to. So that's kind of nice for, for a new brand. Absolutely. Isn't that kind of amazing that a wristwatch is chosen as the symbol to celebrate all these things? All these organizations seem to like wristwatches to celebrate group identity or that they feel very proud of some accomplishment. I think that you and I are equally lucky that in addition to people wearing watches to tell the time, they serve all these other social functions. And, you know, I've written about this many, many times in many different ways, but that these organizations today don't even ask themselves, they're like, yes, we need to have a watch to commemorate our group identity. You know, maybe they have ball caps and, and jackets and, and socks, I don't know. But that watches continue to be in their mind, even amongst younger generation people, I think is something that we're so fortunate on. Right. Well, look, because look, look at it in tennis, look at it in golf, look at it in racing, look at it in, in racing. Of course, your timing. So that has something to do with it. But, you know, driving an Indy car or a Formula One car, you're not timing anything there. They're doing that in the pits. But the, but the point is that you're 100 percent correct. All of these events are bringing a watch into it. I mean, you see Rolex on everything. everything. Yeah. The watch is arbitrary in a lot of ways, but it's a symbol. It's a very serviceable symbol. There's a lot of practical things, you know, unlike clothing. One size sort of fits all, right? You don't have to make too many different sizes, making a maybe a larger and smaller size, but you don't have to worry about that. It's something that you can sort of take on and, and, and take off. It just, for whatever reason, the wristwatch has this communication value that extends beyond it, it being a, a, a thing to tell the time. Um, oh, yeah. You know, First, it's a tool. Then it's a, an aesthetic thing. But third, on top of that, is a communication tool. And it talks about the wearer. And, you know, for the individuals out there that, that know about this, you know, the elite Hawaiian lifeguards, uh, it makes them feel part of an in-group. Whether they participate or they support it, they look at that watch and they're reminded by something that they value. And that's why, to me, it's not at all surprising that in this day and age, a small company like Protect can serve those purposes because you, and sometimes only you, can deliver them the emotion they want through the experience of ordering the watch, designing the watch, wearing the watch. It really doesn't matter what watch it is as long as they're happy with it. And you as Barry or the other you know, leaders of the small brands, those personalities that, that, that promote the brands as well, that's really the service that you're bringing. No corporate environment is able to do it as well as that personal relationship, right? Uh, I think it does help. And, and if you're going to touch on the word service, I want to, if you don't mind, I'll tell you something that I'm actually pretty proud of uh, that came out of a mishap. So sure. when we, well, look, I try to do my very best in what we create. And quality for me is job one. If we're not making quality, I don't want to do it. And uh, when we came out of the gate, we had a problem. And the problem was, it, it was an issue with two series where time wasn't tracking correctly. And it was related to the weight of a hand, the second hand. So I did what you'd see a car company do. I did a recall. And I, this it was not, it was not inexpensive, <laughs> tens of tens and tens of thousands of dollars. But I reached out to everyone that had purchased either of these series. I brought their watches back in. I did a new tooling for a new hand. I sent all watches back to the factory. We retrofitted every single watch with new hands and delivered every watch back to these people. Why did I do it? Because the right thing to do. That's why I did it. But the interesting benefit of this 
I got emails from people that floored me that said, this is the best customer service I've ever had in my whole life. I, if I believed in your brand from the outset based on your history and based on uh, the communication we've had. But if this is how you're going to handle things, I believe in it even more. And, and that was said to me by 60, 70, 80 people. You know, there are a lot of people I didn't speak to, but quite a few people were extremely pleased with what we did. And I suspect we'll have them as customers for a long time, which would be wonderful. But that's not why I did it. I did it because I want them to have a watch on their wrist that they love and not one that they dislike because it's not tracking correctly. You know, one other thing is that that's important is that this whole venture that we're doing here is all about positive energy. There's no negative energy. We just we just want to make the kind of watches that, in particular, that I've always loved, that were part of my career, my whole career mostly, make them for people that can appreciate them, make really high quality, offer outstanding value if we can, and we are, and we can, uh, because I didn't set it up for global distribution. I set it up just to have a nice little U.S. business. Uh, of course, interestingly, now I'm hearing from people in other parts of the world, and okay, we'll figure that out. But we are offering outstanding value for the price in terms of components we're putting in. And the truth is that, you know, any other, you know, we're in just we're in this little pond of tritium watches, right? And it's a smaller pond. It's not an ocean like every other watch is in the ocean. Um, and so for me, I want nothing more than every tritium brand to do great. Great. Because if all the tritium brands do great, the boats rise, you know, all the boats rise with the rising tide. And so it can help us as well. Uh, so there's no, I, I don't see this as competitive in any way, shape or form with any other brand. I see it as if this is the pie today, with this is the pie that we want, a bigger pie. And we'll just take a tiny slice off the side. And that's kind of how we're looking at the whole brand. That makes sense. I, I want to change topics a little bit to teams because I thought that was so interesting when you were discussing about when you were uh, working at Luminox and how the team was so responsible for much of the growth, especially the representatives and the, the salespeople. You know, the importance of teams, of course, is, is just as important today. And obviously, the when there's less resource, less of a team. But what I want to talk about is how do you train team members these days? Because I think the process of doing well, selling a watch, is anything but straightforward. You, there's no direct types of sales experience that easily ports over. There has to be additional training. There has to be additional understanding of what you need to sell and how a brand works and the timeframes. How do you find team members is easier, harder today? And talk a little bit about how to train them to understand what the actual mission is, because I think it's quite different than selling other goods. Well, first of all, it's it's more difficult than ever to find quality representation. Okay. <laughs> Again, it's not, everything's more tough today. Right. Um, but the way I've always seen the, the best way to quote unquote train people I mean, I just think of myself as an individual, as a sales representative, okay? I took on whatever. I mean, for 10 years, I worked for Wenger, as an example. Uh, and what I would, what I did there or, or with any other brand is I want to go with you on your sales call, and I want to sit and listen. And that's how you absorb somebody else's presentation. You absorb product knowledge. You absorb the sequence in which they deliver the message. Then you go with somebody else, and you do the same thing again. 
And bit by bit, you pick up cues from this person, from that person. And then you take your own innate abilities and your own way of how you would present something and you meld it with what you've learned from the other people. And there's your presentation for presenting the product. Now, part of that has to be product knowledge. You got to have some knowledge as to what it is that you're actually selling. And that has to be imparted uh, to the recipient of the, of, of the presentation. Um, but actually uh, the other aspects of training, which you'd find in the corporate world is like manuals where you have a manual that explains this is our process, these are our these are our key selling points, our USP, here's our components used, here's you know, and that's kind of the dry stuff, but it's stuff you got to digest and learn and and the rest comes from I think uh absorbing how others that have managed to make it work absorbing how they present it and and trying to assimilate that into your own presentation so that you have a good way of presenting the product. Do you think that it's enough to really love watches? Do you really need to love watches? Because there's a lot of people that love watches that come to me and they'd love to be in the watch industry. And I think sales is obviously a natural start for many people unless they have special technical skills. But then I also notice that there's a lot of people that are, do excellent selling watches that don't really know too much of the pro- about the product. And I want to know from your experience, how important is product love? And how can someone learn about the product on the job? Well, the love creates passion. And the passion is, again, to use the word visceral, the passion is visceral. People will feel it if you have that passion. Um, and then the other aspect is just the actual product knowledge. So it's two things. It's it's knowledge of the, the product itself, how it compares to those that are out there, and then the passion you have for the given products that you have. Okay. So, I mean, you're... I think the important thing is, you know, if you're in a hiring position, should you rule out people who don't like watches? Is that a necessary component? Can they be uh, taught? Because this uh, is an interesting question. Well, I, I mean, it would be very hard for me to, let's say I met somebody who says, ah, I don't wear analog watches. I got my, I got my cell phone or, or I got my iPhone, I, I watch or Apple watch, or I got, I mean, that would be a hard person to, to bring on to sell an analog watch. I can't imagine it, frankly. <laughs> I just, you know, uh, I don't see that working. You know, and that, and it's interesting because these are two dynamics that we've seen happen over the years, right? I'll give you one. My, my son uh, graduated eighth grade. I gave him a nice review Tolman watch. And of course, he had a couple of Luminoxes, right? And by 11th grade, he's no longer wearing a watch. And I said, to him, hey, Mike, I see you, uh, you're not wearing a watch. What's up? Yeah, I don't need a dad. I got my cell phone. Okay. You know, if you push. You're like, which push. family do you come from? <laughs> yeah, if you push, they're going to push back. So I just I know, let, it, I let it be, right? Well, you got kids. You'll you'll see as they get older. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, and so I let it be. But, you know, I noticed somewhere around the fourth, the third or fourth year of college, Third year, he starts wearing a watch occasionally. Fourth year, he's wearing a watch. Goes into the workforce, he's wearing a watch every single day. And so then I said, well, you know, I thought you you didn't really need watches. And he gave uh, what I thought was a very cogent comment and very, very, very appropriate and 100% accurate. He said, I don't need a watch. I wear a watch because it says something about who I am. And, okay. and isn't that really the case? I mean, when you get right down to it, like, like uh, for example, you're an avid scuba diver. Your watch of choice is probably not... I'm in it, Peter. 
Oh, it's probably not an, <laughs> an Omega Constellation, as an example. You know, something right. that's a little dressier. It's a, your watch is probably a, a bang-it-up dive watch, and that says kind of who you are. So to me, and, and if you think about it, by the way, women have a lot of ways where they can express who they are in this kind of manner, whether it's attire, hair fashions, nail fashions, handbags, shoes. You can go down a long list. But guys don't have that many ways to say, this is me. And, you know, at one point, the writing instrument, you know, pens, uh, fountain pens and so on was a big category. It kind of disappeared. Um, but watches remain as maybe maybe the strongest element a guy can put on himself to say, this is who I am. Absolutely. And maybe for that reason, I don't think we ever have to worry about the analog watch business dying. And I'll also point out that, and you remember it, Ariel, that when, when the Apple Watch hit the scene, it was quite an anomaly. I mean, no one had ever seen rapid growth like this. And, and I'm not sure if these numbers are exact, but I think in 18 months, they sold like 5.7 million watches or some crazy number and became you know, quote, the second biggest watch company in the world, supposedly. And, you know, building a watch brand usually takes generations. It doesn't happen that quickly. So that was a highly irregular thing. And it, and it dampened the standard analog watch business terribly. I mean, businesses went off by as much as 50%, you know, from 20 to 50% in sales. Uh, but interestingly, within a couple of years, you saw that analog business climb right back and now it's higher than ever. Yep. And I mean, you can read all the reports, Swiss uh, exports to the U.S. are way up. And, uh, you know, all watches are selling just fine. The industry is very, very safe. Uh, there's plenty of room uh, for, for people to wear analog watches, even in this day and age, uh, even with all the smart watches that are out there. And, and as a little pun, just for the fun of it, uh, my old partner, Rich, and I, when the advent of smartwatches was happening. Uh, you know, they'd come to the trade show booth and say, hey, do you guys have smartwatches? And we always remember now, we were about loom. So our response was, no, we, we really don't. But we have bright watches. <laughs> and that was our answer. Not smart, but bright. That's cute. That's cute. I, I just want to remind you that in 2016, I wrote an article called Smartwatches Will Be a Highway to High-End Watches. Um, this was not long after the first Apple Watch came out. And this, there was this fear that, like you said, smartwatches would kill the analog watch industry. And what I said is it will be disrupted, but ultimately this will increase popularity of things you wear on your wrist. And because traditional watches will continue to have far greater expressive value that smartwatches will manage to have, consumers will supplement their smartwatch wearing with traditional watches. And it's exactly what we've seen happen. And I think, I think you're 100% correct. And it just came up in a conversation two days ago. Uh, there's a new television show that's being done in Hollywood. And they reached out to me and they said, hey, we want, our, we want your watches in our show. We want them on our lead character and we want them on others. And we're going to write it into the script. And wow. I said... I said, wow, are you kidding me? No, we've seen your watches. We love them. We want them. And in that dialogue with this guy who's the producer and, and also he's the executive producer. He's also one of the writers. Uh, in that dialogue, he said, for me, it's about real items. I don't want a smartwatch. 
I want an analog watch. And we're using certain shaving kits and we're using certain, and it was all about the kind of the stuff of, you know, 25 years ago, really. He said, I can't imagine not having an analog watch on my wrist. And I can't imagine my lead character not having one. Okay. I mean, I've seen an enormous amount of wristwatch integration into movies and not just the paid ones. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing that. Basically, we're, we're out of time for this show. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's, 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 been a, it's been a great discussion. We'll, you're a regular now, Barry, so we'll have to have you back again. Um, I look forward to seeing some of the next ProTech watches. Of course, you can see uh, more about them on our coverage on Watch Watch. Um, any last things you want to say and remind everyone where they can find you and your All products right. on the internet? Well, sure. But first thing I want to do is I want to thank you, Ariel, for having me again. And, and lovely to be considered a regular. I'll look forward to any future. Co- it's always nice to talk to you anyway. And I've known that since I first met you. My pleasure. Um, which goes back a couple of decades, buddy. But... Uh, you can find our product at protechwatch.com. That's P-R-O-T-E-K watch.com. Uh, we're in the midst of, uh, we're about to revamp the entire website and have a much, much better site. So that'll be coming in, in the near future. Um, and I'm just really appreciative of uh, you, your time, giving me some time, letting your audience know what we're doing. And, uh, very, very appreciative of of those that have come to us already. I had a I had a call yesterday from Beverly Hills police officer who said, "I just bought two of your watches. I'm going to buy a third one. I love them. We want them for our police department." Oh, okay. But uh, but those type of things, when I hear from consumers where somehow we've touched them, that's very rewarding. And it's kind of why I'm doing this. Like I told you, I just want to make good quality. Make them for people that can appreciate it. And we don't need a massive business. We're happy to have a nice little business. Uh, And I'm appreciative to you for helping us spread the word to your consumer base. So thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Barry Cohen. Barry, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.